I invite you to be seated. As you're seated, I also ask you to pray with me. Let's pray. God, we come to you having sung songs, having heard your scripture read, to continue to hear a word from you during this Advent season, that we might draw a little bit closer to the gifts that you offer us with the birth of your son, Jesus. So we pray that the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God. Amen. Amen. Well, today is week three of Advent. It's the week when we light the candle of, we lit the candle of joy. And before we go forward to our scripture reading today, I want to go backwards just a little bit of where we've gone with our readings throughout this Advent season. We began our journey with talking about from generation to generation as the theme for our Advent season this year with a really exciting scripture the genealogy of Jesus, right? The begat, begat, begats. And we talked about how, uh, how it kind of told the story of God through the generations and how they made its way to this person, Mary, and her son, Jesus. And then last week, we focused a little bit on like the feelings of Mary that she had. And today we get now the story of Joseph from, uh, the story from Joseph's perspective, and where he was. And today we're going to continue to talk about the sort of generations to generations theme and how God continues to be within us in our stories past and in our stories in the future. Before I go a little bit further, one of the things I mentioned last week, and if you have any conversations with me outside of like Sunday morning, it'll probably revolve around one thing during this time. That's the World Cup. And I keep to saying that. Like, so everyone who talks to me, like, all that's on my mind is the soccer World Cup. I love this time. It only happens once every four years. I don't watch enough soccer, like, or football, you know, outside of the World Cup. But when the World Cup happens, like, everything stops. It's much easier in the summer. Um, but now, you know, at five in the morning, my kids are waking up as early as possible, at least Hudson and Grayson. And, Dad, what game is on? And we throw the game on and, and we watch it. Um, and then there's this one uh, reel that showed up in my Instagram feed. Um, and it's kind of like uh, talking about how Americans were not very good at you know, soccer, typically, right? You know, we don't go very far in it. And this particular American uh, was kind of bragging about how good the U.S. is at athletics all around. And he was like, he made a list of all the players that would be in the World Cup for the United States if soccer were the number one sport. You know, soccer is like the number one sport in most nations throughout the world. It's America, it's like the the fifth tier. And he jokes, you know, like, you guys are playing up against a, a couple suburban college kids, right? You know, and he goes through the list of like, what if LeBron James or John Morant and like lists all of these all-star athletes from every area and starts saying, you would have no chance the rest of the world at beating the U.S. if all of our professional athletes joined together and played one sport as like the rest of the world does. I know there's other sports, but football is life in other places, especially the places that are winning. And I thought about that for a minute. And you know what I came to the conclusion of? I don't think it's true. Because if you ever watch Americans play soccer, you know that we do, I mean, we're getting better at it. But what we were known for in like the 90s was just like, kick the ball and chase it. Like, that's all we like to do. We like to kick the ball, try to run past the defenders and put it in the net because almost all of our sports 
need more entertainment than a zero to zero game with penalty kicks at the end, right? I mean, we are like an, an entertainment, like instant gratification. Like we want the touchdowns. I mean, if there's a football game that's low scoring, everyone leaves upset, not because of the score of the game and who won, but it was just boring to watch, right? And basketball has like a hundred points on both sides and even hockey. They had to change the rules of hockey. Did you know this? So that there were more goals. It happened like in the 2000s, the goalies were getting too good and it was too boring for Americans to watch. And so they had to like narrow the like pads of the goalies and like change some of the rules. So now the scores are more like four to six instead of one to one or one to two. We want the points. And the reason I say that, you know, there's more than just being good at something that goes into an ability to do something. There's more than just being good at something that goes into the ability of doing something. And so, for example, we might have the best athletes in the world. And, you know, like LeBron James, I mean, the guy, he's just like a different sort of creature, right? 6'9", can jump so high, all these things. But the culture that he grew up in, the, the way that he approaches the game of basketball, the way that his parents taught him to play, the way the media all plays into effect how he would be able to transition to another sport. All of what's around us affects us. I'm going to get heady on you just for a minute. We as Americans are, are known as what's called self-determining being, like so we self-determinists, which is to say that we like to think that the way in which we approach the world or the way in which our future will unfold is based on the choices that I make as an individual. Right? We're in control of our own future. You don't like your current life situation? Well, choose another one. Find a new trade, a new hobby, new friends, a new career. You can choose the future for yourself. And if you choose it and you put the work into it, you can determine your future. It's kind of the pick yourself up by the bootstraps mentality of how we approach life as Americans. And one of the things that I often like to say is that this is not the approach on life that many throughout the world have had, especially throughout the millennia. Because one of the people that has been the most influential in the world history about like how we approach life and life's choices is a guy named Aristotle. Anyone ever heard of him before? Yeah, Aristotle. And, and what I say is that if I were to ask you, the best way to describe that, and some of you heard me describe this before, if I were to ask you right now, can you come up and uh, play the piano, right, um, and, and lead us in worship. You know, yes, most of us say, yeah, we can. We won't be any good at it, but we can do it, right? Well, let's say right now, can you come up and lead the worship in guitar? You might say, yes, I can, but I won't be any good at it. But the reality is, no, you can't, because actually there's no guitars in the sanctuary right now, <laughs> right? Seriously. You are unable to choose to lead our service with guitar right now because we have no guitar. And similarly, you're not going to be any good at it and you would be unable to really play it unless you have someone that has taught you how to play the guitar. Unless you have someone that has trained you on this skill to be able to lead and worship. Unless you have Koenna back in the AV booth that's going to plug you in and project you in the speakers. There is so much that is also at work than your choice to say, yes, I can play the guitar. 
And that, this is an Aristotelian logic, so to speak, super fancy word. It's to say that our choices alone are not the choices that affect our lives. It's also the stepping stones prior and before us that pave the way for our choices. That there's more in the world that affects us. It helps scope, it helps shape where we even decide to go as the next steps. And, and I say all of this because, you know, it's easy to look at Joseph for a second and say, I can't believe he was ready to just ditch his wife, <laughs> right? Not believe anything she had said about who she was and, or like what God had said to her in a dream. I mean, like she had, he had completely not heard any of that. You know, like, Joseph, God tell you this. God showed up to me. And guess what? I'm pregnant. Yeah. And it's God's son. And Joseph clearly didn't believe any of it because in the back, he's just thinking, okay, how do we both get out of this situation without, you know, it damaging at least, especially me, but, you know, her as much as possible, right? So he was thinking about how can he leave Mary because she was pregnant outside of wedlock, which was not something you're supposed to do within ancient Judaism, and in fact, could render both of them outside of the social structures that could give them support. So he's thinking about how he might be able to maintain his good standing as a righteous Jew, which is what his parents taught him to do, what their parents taught them to do, what everyone that has gone before to be right in this world is to maintain the Torah, is to follow in the footsteps that were paved from Abraham to Moses, now to my parents, that I carry on. Joseph was trying to do his best with the circumstances that he had. And certainly there was doubt and fear and, you know, interpersonal dynamics that he wants to believe Mary, but just the ramifications of what that might mean are just too much to, like, take on. And then he decides to, I guess, sleep on it, right? <laughs> he had, you know, in his path, the, the scripture says, he knew what he was going to do. He was going to just dismiss her where no one else is going to see, not mention it. Yeah, you know, Mary, just, it just didn't work out. You know, she went to visit some cousins in another city and, you know, that was it, right? And just not say anything about what had actually happened, which is that she was pregnant outside of wedlock and any of that stuff. And then an angel shows up to him in his dream, and says something very similar to what Mary had been saying that God had said to her via an angel as well. And this is where we found ourselves at a crux. We find ourselves at a crux when Joseph decides in this moment the future for not just himself, but for the world. That Joseph decides here to make a choice to move away from the stepping stones that had gone before and to follow these new ones that God was opening up. It was like as if two paths had gone, the way that he was supposed to go, which is the way he came from, and then this new avenue of this angel in a dream and of his wife, future wife and the story that she had been telling. And, and this one was clouded, and this one was uncertain, and this one, there is no hope necessarily for the two of them. 
other than the words of the angel. And this way, well, it's been the tried and true. It's been our bread and butter as a people of God. And Joseph, in this moment, decides, decides a future of unknown and uncertainty. And the future of unknown and uncertainty and of fear eventually, down the road, years, leads its way to joy. That through the fear comes the potential for joy. I wonder for us how many times that we've been given an opportunity to decide where we were and where we're going. And if we choose the path that we know, or if we choose the path that we don't. I wonder how many of you got a call saying, there's a job on this island in the middle of the Pacific. Are you interested in this? And you decide to take a risk and to go. I wonder if the opposite was the case. There's a job that makes a heck of a lot more money with a lot lower overhead for housing on the mainland somewhere. <laughs> Are you interested? And you chose maybe yes, or you chose to stay, be part of the community. The thing is, though, is that one of the gifts I talked about last week of learning the stories of our kapuna, one of the things that I have found most meaningful is hearing the stories of how they made some of life's hardest decisions. And, and they talk about cruxes in their lives when they could have chosen to, you know, move away or, or chose to stay or, you know, how they decided to choose their partner that now they're like married with for 60 years, you know, like all of these stories uh, of how they chose their next steps in the future. And the thing is, is that I find those so meaningful because those stories that I've heard over, uh, you know, the course of my ministry have helped me and helped shape my choices as I move forward. And so the first takeaway for us is, like, are we listening to the stories of those that have gone before? Because here's another thing. I talk about Americans being self-determinists. You know what else we tend to be sometimes? Thinking that the new generation is the right generation, right? That the new generation has the answers, and the new generation knows it. I mean, you know, those old folks, they can't even open up their iPhones and figure out where they're supposed to go. How are they supposed to tell me how to make a business choice, Right? But one of the things that I know, and one of the things, the beauty of studying theology is to, to realize that this is not true at all, right? I mentioned going back 2,000 years, if you've ever read Aristotle, right? 2,000 years ago, I mean, he, he had a lot wrong, like especially anatomy, physiology, and women's place. And I mean, I, I could go into the, some of that in detail on a side note. He had a lot wrong. And at the same time, the intellect and the intuition on interpersonal relationships goes beyond anyone I, I can understand, like I've read now. And similarly, you have, you know, Augustine, you have St. Thomas, you have Francis, you have Bonaventure, you have all of these theologians that have gone before us that knew something so meaningful about this life and this journey called faith following Jesus that what they said thousand years ago, 2,000 years ago, still has meaning today. So when I hear aunties and uncles share their stories about decisions, I don't just disregard them as if they don't know, but I think to myself, what wisdom 
might they have to impart upon us? And, and the last thing that I will share, so one is listen to the stories of those that have a few more gray hairs than you, okay? So that, that's something that you hear. And, if you, and that's just actively sharing them if you have a few more gray hairs, because I promise you that the younger generation actually does want to hear. And younger generation is to listen to those because those will help shape us. But the other part about it is not to hide, not to hide the flaws, the poor choices, and the mistakes that you have made, and the challenges. I was listening to a, a sermon uh, earlier this week, and the sermon was of a pastor who talked about people saying that they don't like to go to church because it's just filled with a bunch of hypocrites. And he had said, that's the worst logic I've ever heard in his life, because no one walks into a gym and says, I'm never going back, because I walked into the gym, and guess what? There was people that weren't in shape in there, Right? And it was funny and it was catching. I was like, oh man, he's right. Like this kind of something. No one walks into a gym and says, oh, there's people that aren't in shape in there and they're trying to get better. And you know, then why would someone say, I'm not going to go to church because there's hypocrites. Like we at church know that we're flawed, right? And raise your hand if you're perfect. <laughs> all right. I'm a but the idea is that we all know that. But the difference as I was reflecting on what he was saying though, the difference that I find in churches is that in the gym, you can't hide being out of shape. I mean, you're sweating profusely. You're like, you're doing things wrong and you like can't lift as much, right? You know, like it's just like unhideable. But in churches though, it's much easier to hide, right? It's much easier to answer everything's fine. And it's much easier to not show the challenges at home, the pain that keeps you up at night. You can nod and drink your coffee and go on your way, and everyone thinks that your life is great. So I don't think it's that we're intentionally being hypocritical. I think the reality is sometimes we just don't share authentically. Because we think that we have to have life together. We think, like Joseph, that, you know, we don't want to publicly disgrace anyone, ourselves, our spouse, for what he said to me last night. And so we don't share. But there was no hiding the flaws of Joseph's life after deciding to stay with Mary. That was a public decision, and people were going to see it no matter what. But here's the thing that I have experienced so far from listening to stories, not necessarily because I know. It's that our joy in life, as we lit the candle of joy, is not found when we're perfect. Our joy in life is not found by making all of the right choices and by having it all together and following the path that went before perfectly to the trajectory it had in the future. Our joy in life is found as we're open and honest about the challenges. That's what it says in the end of this scripture passage, that he will be named Emmanuel. God is with us. That in the end, it's not about making all the right decisions and having life together, but about acknowledging that God is with us. My wife and I have a conversation all the time about if we're being good parents or not. And then 
I often, you know, you know, can, we can cycle into that and be like, well, you know, I probably should have done this better or probably should read in these books so I engage better. But then I remember my parents who have gone before us. And sorry, mom, dad, I know you might be watching, but you weren't perfect. Um, and you made mistakes. And her parents made mistakes. And their parents made mistakes. And that's just the way it is. Like, no matter what, I'm sorry, you've probably damaged your kids in some way, right? You all know that. And as you do that, probably the only way through it with a healthy relationship with them is to be honest about it and to acknowledge it and to say, I didn't have it together. It's to give yourself the grace to say that God's with us whether we did it right or did it wrong. And then it's to share that story. The greatest coaches in this journey I have right now of being are not the kapuna or the elders that tell ways that my kids are behaving wrong. I know that, right? Like, it's the ones that share their stories of their kids and their challenges that they had in raising them. Because then all of a sudden I'm like, oh yeah, you get it. You're with me. God is with us. Let's stop trying to pretend that we all have everything together. And let's share our stories authentically. And as we do that, we might see new avenues opening up for each of us. And in those new avenues, we hope that the gift of Christ, of joy, might poke up and show itself in our lives and in the world around us. I invite you to pray with me. God, we thank you that joy in life is not about having life together. And we thank you for the example that we have in Joseph making what was probably a poor choice according to all the standards that have gone before him. But paving the way for your presence here on earth. Reminding us that you're always with us. So we pray that we would be a people that don't just rely on our own decisions, thoughts, and ideas. That pay attention to the stories around us. Especially those that have gone before us. Have trekked the path. And let's also be willing to, to share and be vulnerable, to not pretend we've made all the right choices and done things perfectly. As we embrace our flaws, we hold true to the one gift of your presence always with us. And that's in the name of Jesus and the gift of Emmanuel always with us, that we can place our hope and our trust and allow the name to lift the burdens. Because in coming in Jesus, you acknowledge that we don't have to do it ourselves. Amen.